One of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture today. The other day, my wife says to me that, uh, she says, my brother is coming to town. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, he's going to be in the area. And uh, her brother happens to travel with a, a music group. In fact, he does guitar tech for a country band called the Turnpike Troubadours. And so she said, they're going to they're be doing a show in Charlotte. And I said, really? I said, where are they playing? She said, Bank of America Stadium. I go, wow, that's, that's a big venue. Are they the only one playing that? She said, no, they're opening for Luke Combs. I said, you don't say. She said, yeah, in fact, he's got tickets for us. I said, really? So we all went, my in-laws and my wife and I, my two oldest kids, and we drove to Charlotte for this show. And we got there. When we got to town, of course, the traffic was crazy. And so we're navigating all of this. And we're just trying to find a place to park. I'd never been to that stadium before. And we finally found a parking garage. And we got in line. And then we got in there and went up to the fourth level. And I squeezed into a spot. And I was anxious to get to the stadium. We, we didn't know where Will Call was to pick up our tickets. And we just wanted to find our seats and find her brother and all of that stuff. And so we're in a hurry. We take the elevator down four floors down to the bottom, and we got out, and when we got out, we weren't quite at street level. There was another half flight of stairs to take you down to the sidewalk, and so we're hurrying down, and when we go down those steps, we could hear behind us this cry of exasperation, and I look back, and uh, getting off the elevator behind us was this elderly couple, and this, this woman had a walker, one of those walkers with, with wheels on the bottom. It was a rolling walker. And she didn't realize that there were stairs at the bottom of this elevator. And so she was just frustrated. They were trying to go to the concert as well. And so my wife and I looked at each other and I nodded and we went up there. And my wife, uh, my wife helped this lady. I said, let me carry that for you. And I carried her walker down and we sat it down. And, and they made it down the steps safely and they thanked us. We said, absolutely, have a great night, enjoy the concert. And we went on. We got to the stadium, we went inside, found our seats, place was packed. At least 50,000 people at this concert. By the way, 50,000 people, I didn't see one person drinking a Bud Light. I'm just saying. <laughs> Do with that what you will. Uh, I was drinking a LaCroix. You're like, sure you were, Pastor Scott. Anyway. So we enjoyed the concert, all the bands were great, Luke Combs did a great job, all this stuff, but it, it, was, running, it was running late, and you know, we had to make it back to Burlington, had some friends watching our kids and all this stuff, so we're just like, we, we need to go, and it was about 10.30, and so uh, we knew if we didn't get out of there, if we waited till the end, it was going to be a couple hours just to get out of the place. And so we, we walked a fur piece to this parking garage... And we finally get there, and it's dark, and it's late, and we were like the only people leaving. I, there were judgmental eyes watching us as we left. They're like, you're leaving now? And uh, we got back to the parking garage. Guess who walked up at the exact moment as we got to that parking garage? That elderly couple. Right as we reached those steps that you had to ascend to get to that, elderly, or that elevator, there they were, her and her little walker. And it was like God put us there right at that moment, to assist them. And it was just, it was kind of a divine appointment. It really was. And so I just, I appreciated the opportunity to kind of step into uh, a, a role where you get to be kind to somebody. Now, what do you call 
What do you call it when somebody is kind to a stranger that shows up and meets need? What do we call it? We call that a good Samaritan, right? That's the parable that we're looking at today. This story is so well known. It has entered, entered the public consciousness. You don't need to be a Christian to, to know that term, good Samaritan. Uh, everybody's familiar with this concept, with this idea. And we see kindness Front and center here, and kindness is a predominant theme in the New Testament. In fact, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness. And so in your notes, the parable of the Good Samaritan is about the kindness of the kingdom, which is not to say that it is merely a story about kindness in general. As we shall see. But this is a well-known story. I mean, it's right up there with the Sermon on the Mount, with the Lord's Prayer, with the, the prodigal son, with the golden rule. People know it, whether or not they're people of faith. But the truth is, they may not know what it's really, really about beneath the surface. Because this story, as we're going to see, is about something deeper than simply being nice. So we're going to look at that. Now, to get the original meaning of this story, we've got to go back from where it starts, about four verses. I want you to look with me at verse 21 in chapter 10. And we see Jesus in prayer. It says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you, you have hidden, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You guys remember what the purpose of a parable is? It's, it's an everyday, uh, it, it is a story with everyday examples from, from life that Jesus used to reveal truth to those who were seeking him. But at the same time, he used a story like this to obscure truth, to hide truth from those who had rejected him, who had not sought him. And so he thanks God that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, thank you, for such was your gracious will. You've hidden them from the wise and understanding. Who are the wise and understanding in this context? In Jesus' day, the wise and understanding would be a reference to the learned people, the educated people, the elite religious Jews that were running that nation, all right? The scholars. And they, he says, uh, are, are, are ignorant of the truth of God. They were darkened to the things of God and of Christ. Why? Because they were so opposed uh, to Christ, to God's ways, that uh, he, just, he just gave them over to their own thinking, to their own blindness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, meaning whenever the law is read, the Old Testament text, uh, there's a veil over their hearts. They don't perceive the very word of God because of their obstinate, hard-headed stubbornness, how they have reframed God's word to suit their own uh, sensibilities, to make it palatable for what they want. And until someone humbles themselves and comes to Christ, that veil remains in place. You know, when you were lost before you knew the Lord, you had a veil over your heart. But when you came by faith, that veil is lifted. And so Jesus is praying to his father about these supposedly uh, educated, uh, esteemed people that they do not access the truth. It is hidden from them. And yet, he says, you have revealed it to little children. Who are the little children? Well, that would be the 
the ones that the world looks down upon, the, the social outcasts, the ones who are backward in the estimation of the elites, but they have come to repentance. I pray that you have come to repentance today. You know what it is that brings us to repentance? What does scripture say in Romans 2, 4? It says that, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When you repent, that is because the Lord has removed that veil and it is his kindness that brings us to this place where we are humbled and we trust him by faith. And it is a kindness that is not reserved for the high and the mighty and the affluent and the educated. It is extended to the humble and the lowly, those of no reputation. And so this is what Christ is praying here. And we're going to see in our text today, we're going to meet three types of people. We're going to meet a lawyer, we're going to meet a priest, and we're going to meet a Levite. And those people fit into that first category of the wise and understanding of Israel, the high and the mighty, yet darkened to God's truth. But who is going to be used in our story today? It's not going to be any of those elites. It's going to be someone who is an outcast. It's going to be someone who is a reject. It's going to be someone outside of the norms of human privilege, a little child in the eyes of the world and so let's look at this account in verse 25. Skip ahead just a few there. Christ has prayed in front of this group of people. You got a, a crowd there, and it says that, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, who is a lawyer in this context? Some of you have in your minds an idea of a lawyer. All right, This particular guy is representative of, of people that existed in that intertestamental period. You got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. There was a, a gap in between them of about 400 years. And Israel, in their sordid history, had, had over and over fallen into idolatry. And every time they worshiped idols, God would allow some foreign power to come in and subdue them and persecute them. And by the end of the Old Testament era, uh, there were Jews that stood up and said, no more. No more of that. We, we're not going to fall into idolatry. We're going to stay true to the law, and we will be responsible to ensure uh, that we never undergo persecution again. And so this group of guys rose up and took that responsibility, and this group was called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you may know that word. A Pharisee was a member of a sect of Judaism, and, and there was a subset within that sect of Pharisees called lawyers. And these were the people that were educated specifically in the law. They were the scholars of the law. There was a, a ruling class among the Jews called the Sanhedrin. And whenever they had to make a decision, and they wanted to know, well, what does God's law say on this? They'd bring in one of these guys. These were like the seminary professors, okay? If you watch like news shows on Fox News or CNN or something, sometimes they'll bring on a legal analyst or a constitutional scholar or something like that. This was kind of like that. They were a scholar in the law of God, the Old Testament law. And so the, here's an academic, a, 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 a seminarian, and he approaches Jesus, this, this Galilean, this blue-collar uh, uh, carpenter's son from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he comes and he asks a question, but it's not a sincere question. Because our text says that he stood up to put him to the test. Right? He wanted to trip Jesus up. He wanted to embarrass him. He wanted to stump him in front of all these people. 
and, and make him look like a fool because Jesus had done that a number of times with a lot of Jewish leaders. So it's time to take this, this Galilean carpenter down a peg, expose him, and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so we're going to examine a couple of questions in this text here today. And the first question that we note in your notes is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we've seen variations on that question. Just last week, we looked at a parable, the parable of the vineyard. And that parable was predicated by an encounter that Christ had with a young man, a rich young man, as I said, who, who comes to him with a question. He says, what good deed must I do to, uh, to have eternal life? And so this is kind of like that question, but there's a slight difference. You got the word inherit. Inherit is in this question. Now, do you have to do anything to inherit something? No, it's an inheritance. You just, you just receive it. It was bequeathed to you. It, it, it was granted to you. You just, you just take it. So the very question is sort of a contradiction in terms. You don't do anything to inherit. And this really kind of shows that what Jesus prayed was true, that, that Lord, you have hidden your truth from the wise and the understanding. All these educated guys, they don't get it. This guy clearly was, was confused. Here he is, scholar. He, he knows the Old Testament. Did the Old Testament ever speak of doing something in order to obtain eternal life? Is that inherent in the Old Testament, in the law? No. Throughout the Old Testament, always, always, you, you must believe in the mercy of God uh, through the substitution of someone who, who dies for you, who sheds blood for you in order uh, to be granted salvation. There, there would be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. There was a whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament for that purpose. Nobody ever <laughs> earned the favor of God. And now we as Christians who know the New Testament, we can look back and we can see clearly it's Jesus that that whole system of sacrifice was always pointing ahead to. It was always a picture of Christ. But Old or New Testament, never ever did you earn the favor of God. You certainly did not earn eternal life. But this guy uh, was the product uh, of an evolution of thought that had come into being that you can earn it, that there are things that you must do in relation to the law. And he's asking, how do I know in my own soul that I have attained God's favor? And in verse 26, Jesus responds. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so he's, he's not answering the question uh, uh, straight up, is he? What's he doing? He's reframing the question. He's reframing the question. In your notes, Jesus reframes the question. What does the law say? What does the law say? He's like, how do I, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, what does the law say? So we're given a glimpse here into how Jesus fielded questions. Often he would respond to a question with a question. Don't you love it when you ask a question and somebody answers with a question? Isn't that a delight? That's annoying, right? Jesus must have annoyed the snot out of people. I mean, he's always doing this. I read somewhere that Jesus in the Gospels is asked 183 questions. And he only directly answers three of them. That's it. By contrast, he asks a whole lot of questions. He asks something like 307 questions in the Gospels. 
And so that, that was central to uh, his life and teachings. And so just, just know this. When you're reading the Gospels and somebody asks Jesus a question and he answers with a question, they about to get whooped. All right? He's got them up against the wall. Uh, by the way, I thought of trying this method with my wife. You know, she'd ask me a question like, honey, did you take out the trash? And I'd respond with, well, what does the law say? You know, to, to which she'd respond with, uh, I am the law, take out the trash, you know. <laughs> now, every Jewish child by about the age of 12 had, had committed to memory a number of verses. And, and the first one would be Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says this. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a big one. That's called the Shema. Every Jewish kid knew that, and they knew the next verse. Deuteronomy 6, 5, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then they also knew uh, Leviticus 19, 18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these verses were thought to be very, very important because they they were felt to uh, sum up the totality of the law. If you could shrink the law down to its basic uh, uh, tenets, if you could just uh, say this is what the law is in one sentence, it would be these concepts right here. Love God and love your neighbor. Does that sound familiar? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Uh, A lot of churches today on their website, they've got some variation on that. Love God, love people, right? We may have that on our website somewhere. It would not be uncommon. Is that the gospel? Love God, love people. Well, no, that's, that's the law. So love God, love people is good. We should love God. We should love people. Is that the gospel message? Is that the Great Commission? No, it is not. No, it is not. It is a summation of the law. And so when Christ asks what's the law say, he's saying to this guy, look, you're a lawyer. You know the law. What, what, what have you been taught since you were a little boy? And this guy doesn't even blink. It says in verse 27, he speaks right up. He answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I could just hear the confidence oozing as he says this, you know. Mr. Poindexter here, he just recites the law like that. Now, does the law save? Is the law intended to save us? No, the law does not save us. Does being obedient to God, does that, does that ensure eternal life for us? Of course not. Of course not. The law is not a surgeon's scalpel. It's a broadsword. All right? The law uh, shows our need. It does not perform surgery. But Jesus picks up the sword of the law, and he quotes from Leviticus 18. He says in verse 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. Do what? Do the law, and you will live. Now, that's interesting. It, 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 it is true. If you look at Leviticus 18.5, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Does that mean that the law can save? Is that what that is saying? So if you were to keep the law, all right, follow me here. If you could keep the law, would you have salvation? Would you have eternal life? 
Well, hypothetically, if you kept the law perfectly, and I mean perfectly, I mean you did everything exactly right. You obeyed every jot and tittle of the law from the time you were born to the time you departed this earthly plane. I mean, cradle to grave. You kept it all. You never made one mistake, and you did it with a good attitude. You never grumbled about it. You never thought a coarse thought, an undue thought. You were flawless in your keeping of the law. Would you have eternal life? Hypothetically, sure. Because if you could do that, that would mean that you're perfect. And if you were perfect, then you wouldn't have to worry about condemnation, would you? That's just who you were. It's not necessarily doing the law that would ensure your eternal life. It's the fact that if you could do the law, that means you're perfect and you don't have to worry about eternal life. Hey, are any of us perfect? Not a one. That doesn't describe a single person in here or in the entire world. And so... This isn't our situation, and this is why that the book of Exodus, which, which presents the law, is immediately followed with the book of Leviticus, which presents the concept of sacrifice. I mean, here's God's law. Do this and you will live. Oh, by the way, you're incapable of that, so let me show you how to sacrifice for sin so that you can have a covering. So God knows what we're capable of. The Old Testament never, ever, ever assumes that you can keep the law. It's, it's ingrained in it. Your inability. The Jews got this wrong by the time of Christ's day. And so Jesus picks up the law. He says, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? Lawyer answers right away, you know, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Jesus answers again with the law. Do this and you will live. And so there is some initial good news here. You want to know how can you inherit eternal life? What does the law say? Love God, love people. Here's the good news. To obtain eternal life in your notes, just fulfill the law perfectly. That's it. That's all. There you go. That's the short answer right there. Good news. You want eternal life? Here's how you do it. All right? Now, everybody look up here. Without looking at your Bible, what should be the next thing out of that lawyer's mouth? He knows the book. He knows the Old Testament. He's familiar with Abraham. Abraham was justified by works. No, he was justified by his faith, his faith. This lawyer knows who David is. Did David plead for the mercy of God? Absolutely he did. This lawyer knows Old Testament is rife with a sacrificial system that you must, you must have the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. He knows that for the sins of the people that the priest must perform sacrifice. So he knows all of this. Christ says you just got to keep the law perfectly and you'll have eternal life. The next words out of his mouth ought to be, I I can't. I'm a sinner. I I I can't keep the law. That's, that's, That's the whole point of celebrating the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is about God's provision for us, a sacrifice for sin. That's why we sacrifice lambs and goats. What must I do to be saved? That's That's the correct question. That's a different question altogether. What do I do to inherit eternal life and what must I do to be saved? Very different questions, you see. If you're asking what must I do to be saved, you are acknowledging you got a problem. If you need salvation, you've already got a problem. You need to know what the solution is and it's not found in you because you're in need of salvation, which means there's a problem with you. 
you're not the answer to your problem. And so the good news is really bad news. Here's the bad news inherent in the good news in your notes. It's that your humanity does not permit following the law perfectly. Your humanity does not allow you to do what you must do in order to have eternal life. This is true from the Old Testament on. Isaiah 53 says, We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, who? Everyone to his own way. Psalm 14, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside together and become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. New Testament, Paul, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I can't keep the law. That's what this lawyer should say right here. If you were to ask me, Scott, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And I said to you, you have to be as good as God. What do you say to that? I can't. That's impossible. So this is the right question. How can I be saved? Does he ask it? Nope. No. He's a lawyer. He doubles down. In verse 29, it says, but he, desiring to justify himself, I would underline that phrase, he's trying to justify himself. Folks, who is it that justifies us? It is the Lord God. When you put your faith in Christ, you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's how we are justified. He's trying to justify himself. Hey, do people try to do that today? They do. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? We've established what the law is. Love God, love your neighbor. Hmm. Uh, who, who, who is my neighbor? See, this is the second question in your notes that we're analyzing today. He poses this, who is my neighbor? All right? Notice, he's not concerned with the first part of the law, love God. He's not concerned with that because who can really accuse him of not loving God? Is there any evidence that he doesn't love God? God is not physically here to confront him to address whether he'd kept that part of the law. But this whole matter of loving your neighbor, he's probably got some people around him that know him. He's probably got some people who are like, uh, I'm your neighbor, you didn't love me. You know, they might call him out on that. He could easily be condemned for a lack of love toward his neighbor. So in this verse, instead of complying to the law, instead of yielding to the reality that Christ is alluding to, he tries to change the standards. <laughs> he says, no, 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 hold on, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? I mean, who's to say who my neighbor is? I mean, what, what, what exactly is that? What does that mean? Sounds like a lawyer, doesn't he? This guy's smart. He's slick. He, he's, he's mincing words, see? He's slicing and dicing. Kind of reminds me of Clinton back in the 90s when he was deposed. Well, it depends on what the definition of is is, you know. Remember that? This guy's slick like that. He fits in that category of the wise and understanding. He's a lawyer versed in the law, and he's he's he's. He's someone who should know the complexities and the insurmountable scope of it all, but despite all that education, in your notes, what you need to understand is that the lawyer proves that religious knowledge is not enough. It is not enough. It doesn't matter what you know. You can be slick. You can be a wordsmith, and you could still fail. 
And please, please acknowledge this behavior is not limited to this lawyer. We all do this. We all do this. When we're confronted with a clear requirement of God, we want to debate it. We want to, we want to find some fine print. We want to get a technicality here, okay? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had as a pastor. People come to me and they're like, all right, this is, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm engaging in in my life right now. Does the Bible allow this? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, well hear me out. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm like, ah. and we go back to the word and we have these tough conversations, but this is our bent, man. I mean, you know, but what does that mean? And isn't there a cultural context there, you know? And so that's what this guy is doing. He's like, love my neighbor to inherit eternal life. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? Who's to say? Is my neighbor a Jew? Is it just Jews? Are, those, are, are Jews my neighbors? What kind of Jews? Younger Jews? More mature Jews? What kind of situation are these Jews in? And how do I love them? What does love mean? What does that look like? What do you mean by that? See, when we're cornered, we can redefine the requirements and the parameters of what is asked of us. Now, if I was fielding this guy's question, this nonsense question, uh, my, my tendency would be to take him back to the Old Testament to look at the Hebrew word for neighbor because it appears in the Old Testament about, about 12 times. You know, and I'd show him, you know, eight times it means this and the rest it means this. And I'd get caught up in like word meanings and all this stuff and I would go in circles with this guy. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't fall for that. I, I go for the rabbit trails, not Christ. He dispenses with word meaning. Instead, he just talks about life. And he says, let me tell you a story. Now, let me tell you something. When Jesus starts off with, once upon a time, you are hosed, okay? <laughs> Things are about to get real. So brace yourself. A parable ensues here. Verse 30, it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Half dead. Now, when you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, that is a descent, folks. It is a windy path that, that descends quickly, and it's very, very treacherous. You are going to the lowest spot on planet Earth. Jerusalem sits at about 200, uh, excuse me, 400 meters above sea level. Jericho, down in the Dead Sea region, that's 250 meters below dead sea level. And so you are going downhill. It is windy. It is treacherous. It was dangerous to travel in Christ's day. It's, it's dangerous to travel today. And so this man in this story is on that path, and he gets jumped, and he gets robbed, and he gets left for dead. And he's there bloodied, battered, bruised, and gasping for air in a ditch. And here comes the scholars and leaders of Israel. The wise and understanding, here they come. It says, verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road. Well, now, what would you expect a priest to do? If you're that guy in the ditch and a priest comes along, you're thinking, hallelujah, I'm saved. God sent a priest. I mean, of all people, here's a guy who offers the sacrifice. That means he's close to the holiness of God. He knows God's word. He, he is called to minister to people. Ah, I thank you, Lord, for sending a priest. How does the priest respond? In verse 31, it says, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Well, why'd he do that? Well, he's got a reason. That's not a good reason. 
But it's a reason. And the reason, as it turns out in the Old Testament, if you, as a Jew, touched anything dead, you had to have offered for you something called the ashes of a red heifer. All right, this was a cleansing ritual. If you touched something dead, the law dictated that they, they would take a red heifer and they had to find a red one, not a white one, not a brown one, not a spotted one, and they had to slaughter that cow and then they would burn it until it was ashes. And they would take those ashes and they would mix it with water and then they'd take a sprig of hyssop and they'd dip it in that ash-filled water and they would sprinkle it in your direction and then you had to go and you had to be outside of the camp for a whole day, 24 hours. And this, this ritual was a cleansing ritual. And so this priest is leaving Jerusalem. If he's on this road, that means he's got somewhere to go. He, there is purpose in this trip. He's not just out sightseeing. He is going somewhere. He's on a mission. And he sees this man in the ditch. And this guy could be dead for all he knows. And his thought is, I got people to see places to be. If I touch that guy and he's dead, then I gotta go through a whole rigmarole. I, ain't nobody got time for that. And so he keeps trucking. He just slips over to the other side and stays about his business. And he's caught up in the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Because what's the point of that ritual? Is it to keep him separated from the living? No, it's all about the holiness of God. And yet he's caught up in the letter of the law. He misses it. And so just like the lawyer shows us that knowledge is not enough, in your notes, the priest demonstrates that religious structure is not enough. We can get caught up in, the, in the, uh, the important work of ministry, and we can miss what God has put in front of us. And so another member of the wise and understanding disappoints. You've got this religious machinery. It is failing. The lawyer failed. The priest failed. That's the varsity. Here comes the JV. Look at verse 32. It says, so likewise, a Levite. What's a Levite? Levites were uh, uh, in order within the tribes of Israel. They took care of the ministry of the priest. They were servants, kind of like deacons in our context. As, as deacons support the eldership of the church, these guys did the logistical work of ministry. They were worship leaders. They were musicians. They were gatekeepers. They were judges. They were temple officials. They were craftsmen, okay? Uh, they were like any number of servants that we have here. They served. That's what they did, serve. So here comes this guy, this servant, perfect opportunity to serve right here. What's he do? So when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Oh, man, we're going down in flames. In your notes, the Levite demonstrates what? That religious activity is not enough. It doesn't matter how busy you are for God. If you miss what he places right in front of you, you are failing here. And so Christ's words in verse 21 about the wise and understanding being clueless, that is being played out in this story. You got this doctor, supposedly understands the book, understands the law, has all this knowledge, fails, doesn't get the righteousness of God. The priest, who ironically offers up sacrifice, demonstrating substitutionary atonement, he doesn't get the righteousness of God and the kindness of God. This Levite, this servant, this guy who is busy for God doing the work of ministry, he fails to serve. Someone in his darkest need doesn't get it. All of these guys that specialize in these areas, failing. 
Christ goes on with his story, and as he does, he utters a word you're not supposed to say if you're a Jew. He says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, a Samaritan. Now in John chapter 8, there were some Pharisees, and they, they are trying to get under Jesus' skin, and they hurl a slur at Christ. And they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And that is the worst thing they can think of to call Jesus, a demon-possessed Samaritan. I mean, they might as well have called him a dog-faced pony soldier, all right? They, they are slandering him, all right? What is the big deal about calling somebody a Samaritan? To the Jew, a Samaritan was a half-breed. There was a racial bias. Samaritans were half-Jewish, but they were half-Assyrian. And so they were prejudiced racially against these, these people. They were not part of the chosen people in the eyes of the Jews. Furthermore, they collectively, they had some odd views. They didn't believe exactly everything that the Jews believed. They still worshipped Yahweh, but they didn't, they didn't accept any writings after the book of Deuteronomy. So a lot of the old Torah, they didn't, they didn't read it. Furthermore, they would not worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Not that the Jews would be excited to see them there, but they worshiped on their own mount, Mount Gerizim. And so they did have some oddball views. We might think of them today as sort of a cult, all right? Outcasts. But this guy worships the true God. He worships Yahweh. He loves God. And he apparently loves his neighbor, as we shall see. It says, and when he saw him... The man in the ditch, he had compassion. And that word for compassion in the Greek, it means that he was deeply moved. He was struck in his spirit. He had pity on this man. It hurt him physically to see this guy in this state. When he looked at that man in the ditch, was there a racial divide there? No. Because when you look and you see a guy who is naked and bloody and battered and gasping for breath, you don't see race, you see a human being. And so he has compassion on this man and so what we see him engage in now is the perfect picture of kindness what does he do it says in verse 34 he went to him he went to he didn't cross over to the other side he stops where he's going and he goes to that ditch he sacrifices his schedule the fact that he's on this road means that he's got to get somewhere and he can't dilly dally but he sees this man and he stops and he goes to him. We don't know where he was going, but it was, it was absolutely important that he get there. Nonetheless, he ceases, goes out of his way and says that he bound up his wounds. He bound up his wounds. Let me assure you, this Samaritan did not have a nice, clean, white roll of gauze. All right? He didn't have a box of Band-Aids. How did he bind up this man's wounds? He tore his garment that's what he had access to. This man tears his own clothing into strips, wraps up this man's wounds. And so he sacrifices his clothing to take care of this guy. It says that he did this pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine are the essentials of eating in those days. If you wanted to eat in, in any sanitary fashion, you had to have oil and wine. And, and that was not cheap necessarily and so this guy takes these essentials and he uses them he puts them on his, this victim's cuts he disinfects he soothes the wounds of this man and then it says then he set him on his own animal so this guy gets off his ride 
his beast of burden. He puts the wounded man up there. Now the Samaritan is walking. And so he is, he is undergoing strenuous activity, sacrificing his animal so that the wounded man can ride. And it says that he brought him to an inn. That means he didn't just go out of his way to that ditch. He went way out of his way. He stops his, his, his time, his trajectory, and he goes who knows where. I don't know how far off the path an inn would be, but he finds a place to take this man. He deviates from his personal plans, puts them on hold, and it says that he took care of him. He took care of him, which means he sacrificed his energies, not just his time. He physically was invested in looking after this man. He, he, he went there, sat with him, presumably for the duration of the day, okay? He probably changed his wounds or his, his bandages. He probably cleaned his wounds. He probably fed the guy. This is not someone who simply comes across someone in need, takes him somewhere, dumps him off at the counter and says, yeah, I found this guy by the, by the side of the road. Can you deal with this? I got somewhere to be. No, he stays with him, takes care of him. And in verse 35, it says, in the next day, he took out two denarii, two coins, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So he sacrifices his own money to meet this guy's needs, covers his expenses, tells the innkeeper, whatever you got to do tomorrow, the next day, whenever, to, to make sure that this guy is taken care of, I'm good for it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to compensate you. You have my word on that. So he basically hands the innkeeper a, a credit card. Now, for all he knows, this guy could price gouge him. He could come back and the innkeeper could lie. He could say, yeah, this is what it costs. Doesn't matter. He's willing to take the chance. He wants to ensure that this guy is going to be taken care of. He sacrifices time, essentials, his clothing, his money, his schedule, etc. What's he doing? He's loving his neighbor. He's loving his neighbor. Now, we don't see the word love mentioned in here, but we can tell that's what's happening. Why? Because there is sacrifice involved. There is sacrifice. Now, the story is complete. Jesus turns to this lawyer, and he says, now you tell me. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of the three was a neighbor. What's he doing? Once again, he's not answering the question as asked. He is reframing the question. And in your notes, he reframes this question as what is a good neighbor? See, he rejects the whole premise of the lawyer's question. He sees what this lawyer's trying to do. He's like, look, man, not who is my neighbor. No, 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 you're, you're, you're not getting off on some technicality, counselor. No, uh, no more word mincing. No more definition twisting. Look at what I've told you. Of this story, what is the example of being a good neighbor? You're, you're focused on who your neighbor is. I'm talking about you. You're to be a good neighbor. Now, what does that look like? And it must pain the lawyer to answer that question. In verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> and I can't help but notice, he can't even utter the word Samaritan. Can't even say it. Although it's obvious that it's the Samaritan. It is this individual who by human logic should have nothing to do with the guy in the ditch. And yet he is the only one 
who shows compassion to that man. And so the good news is we've got the definition, all right? There's some good news. Look, you started by asking me, how do I get eternal life? What does the law say? Well, the law says, love God, love your neighbor. Exactly right. That's how you will have life. Do this and you will live. Yeah, but what is, who is my neighbor? What does that look like? Ah, no, no, not what is my neighbor. What is a good neighbor? How can you be a good neighbor? Who of these guys was a good neighbor? You gotta be like this, aha. And so we've got some good news because there's a definition. Now you know what a good neighbor is. If you wanna know what eternal life is and the answer to that is you gotta be like this, you need to know what that definition is. So the good news in your notes is that a good neighbor shows kindness without condition. There's the answer. You want eternal life? You gotta be like this. You gotta be like this. Doesn't matter the situation. No condition. You show kindness regardless of prejudices, regardless of situation, ethnicity, cultural context, political environment, etc. This is what a good neighbor does. That's the standard. You got to meet that standard in order to have eternal life. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And when he says that, I imagine that hits this guy like a ton of bricks because it's an indictment on this man's prejudice and arrogance and pure inability and ignorance because he's just admitted this is what a good neighbor is. And Jesus says, interesting, now you gotta be like that if you want eternal life. And we see once again that the good news is really bad news. And in your notes, the bad news is only Jesus can do that perfectly. You see, this is not something we pull off through our own efforts. On the surface, this parable is a simple story about kindness. Folks, it is anything but that. This is not a lesson on being nice, all right? This is about the kindness of the kingdom. The coming kingdom, which will be ruled by a perfect king. That which will be the norm, that which will be the rule of that kingdom is manifested imperfectly and temporarily in the age in which we live, but we are not able of pulling it off. Our problem is not identifying what this kindness looks like. Even this lawyer can identify that. Our problem is how do we do that? How do we do that? You see, the Good Samaritan is a picture of the Great Samaritan. And the Great Samaritan is Jesus Christ. He is the enemy of the afflicted who acts in compassion and meets that, that person's needs. He is the one who is willing to sacrifice for others that are positionally opposed to him. This text is, is typological. All right, That means that you see, you see imagery here. You got a man who is dead. He is left for dead. He is, by all practical purposes, he's dead. He's destitute. The religious come. Can they help him? No. Can he help himself? No. He is hopeless. Who helps him? His enemy. The one to whom he is positionally opposed. All right? Listen to me. You and I, 
were naked, we were destitute, we were hopeless in our sinful condition. Could religion help us? No. Could we help ourselves? No. Who could help us when the world beat us up, left us for dead? It was our natural enemy. Because we were children of the devil in our unbelief and the Son of God came down